So put yourself in this parenting scenario, uh, and this it could sound familiar to you. It's Christmas time in Chicago. Kevin is eight years old, and his house is crowded because his relatives are all spending the night to catch an early flight the next morning to take a family trip together. The house is pretty chaotic because it's a big family, and there's a lot going on. Plus, uh, there's a pizza guy waiting at the door to get paid for delivering the pizza, and there's a police officer there waiting to talk to the parents to make sure they've got everything taken care of uh, to keep their house safe while they're gone. And Kevin's parents are trying to get the pizza guy paid and talk to the police officer and get everyone fed and get them the pizza. And Kevin goes to the kitchen where the pizza is, and he goes to the box of cheese pizza because that's the kind he likes. He discovers that there's none left, and he asks, did anyone order me a plain cheese? His older brother answers him, saying, yeah, we did, but if you want any, somebody's going to have to barf it up because we ate it all. Then he begins to pretend to make barfing sounds. And it had been a rough day for Kevin, and this is the last straw. This is his breaking point. And he, so he lets out a scream, runs at his brother, pushes him into the counter, and in doing this, all the cups of milk that were poured over on the counter get dumped over, and everyone else sees what happens, and they start reacting to it, and it kind of starts off uh, this chain reaction. Uh, and the, his dad notices what's happening. He jumps up, he was pouring soda, he drops the soda that he's pouring, and it spills all over the table. And what Kevin did sets off this domino effect of, of chaos in the family. And so put yourself in the shoes of Kevin's parents here. How would you deal with this situation? How should Kevin's misbehavior be dealt with? Should Kevin be punished? Should he be sent to his room? Should he be grounded? Or should he be left off the hook? Because in a way, he was the victim. It had been a rough day. There was no cheese pizza left. And his brother was giving him a hard time being mean to him, purposely ate uh, the cheese pizza that he knew that Kevin liked. And so he's really the victim here. Uh, so what do you think? What, what would you, just think about how would you deal with this parenting situation? How would you deal with Kevin? And as you're thinking about that, is your answer different or the same as how your parents would have dealt with this situation? Uh, would they have dealt with it in the same way that you would have? And so you're like, you know, I'm going to do it the same way, I'm doing it the same way my parents would have dealt with it. Or you're like, you know, I'm going to do it the opposite way my parents dealt with it because they always did it this way. And that wasn't right, so I'm going to do it uh, a different way. And if you haven't figured it out, this is a scene from a famous movie. Uh, how many people know what movie this is from? I think most people. I'll keep going so you can, you'll, get the, you'll get the full effect. I'll finish the scene. Kevin's mom separated from him from his brother, whom he was still pushing and hitting. And then she asked, what's the matter with you? And Kevin said, he started it. He ate my pizza on purpose. He knows I hate sausage and olives and onions. And just then, his Uncle Frank interrupted him with a loud voice, saying, Look what you did, you little jerk. Because it's clicking now, what the movie is. Everyone was staring at him. He looks around the room. Everyone's looking at him with displeasure. And his mom takes him up to the attic, and he wishes, I wish you would all just disappear. And the next morning, he wakes up, and he finds out that he's home alone. Oh, I thought you guys might complete that sentence. So that was uh, one of the opening scenes in, in Home Alone, the first one. And today we're finishing the series called Micah, uh, who, is, who is a God like you? Micah lived 700 years before Jesus. He was a prophet, a spokesman for God. And Micah's purpose was to tell God's people how they had turned from God and the consequences if they kept going that way. And his desire was that they would turn back to God through his preaching. But as we saw last week, he lamented the fact that his ministry did not bear the fruit uh, that he had hoped it would. 
The people didn't change and they would bear the consequences. And yet Micah had confidence in God. In 7 7, chapter 7, verse 7, he said, But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. And the rest of chapter 7 tells us what Micah was looking to the Lord to do. I'm going to look for my God, I'm going to wait for him. What is he waiting for him to do? And what we see in this passage is how God deals with his people when they sin. In fact, that's what this we've been seeing throughout Micah. How does God deal with his children when they misbehave? How does he respond? When God's children disobey, how does he deal with it? When we sin, when we rebel, when we go astray or give into temptation, what does God do? How does he treat us? Does he come down hard on us? Does he let us off the hook? Does he say, yeah, you know, you know you're just kind of a victim of your circumstances? Or does he say, no, this is what, you, you should have done this right. What, what does he do when we sin and disobey. And how we answer that is very important. And we very often struggle with how God treats us when we sin. Our default way of viewing God is how our parents treated us when we disobeyed. What did your parents do when you misbehaved? That's probably how you think God responds when you disobey. Or you may think, I don't really like what my parents did, and so you're hoping God is the opposite way as your parents. Like, my parents were this way, and I didn't like that, and so my ideal vision of God is that he would be this way towards me when I sin or disobey. Either way, if it's either of those options, your view of God is not coming from the Bible. We need to get our view of God from what he's revealed about himself. How does God say he deals with our sin and disobedience? This passage that we're going to look at has four parts, and we'll look at each part uh, and then consider our big idea uh, for the passage. So in verses uh, 8 through 10, Micah speaks on behalf of Jerusalem. You know, if the city, it's like if the city could talk, uh, here's what uh, it, would, it would say. And remember, Micah has just finished telling them uh, the, the day of punishment is coming, and that meant uh, the day of punishment was Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, another nation's going to invade. And it's going to take over, and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And so now it's Jerusalem's talking, and here's what Jerusalem says. It's the city could talk. Verse 8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Jerusalem tells her enemy not to rejoice over her. Yes, she will fall, but she will also rise. Yes, she will sit in darkness, but the Lord will be a light to her. And verse 9 is key. She says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. If he will bring me out to the light, I shall look upon his vindication. And indignation refers to God's righteous anger about something. And Jerusalem says, I'm accepting God's indignation. Uh, I'm going to bear it. Why? Because she says, I've sinned against the Lord. This is the consequence of her actions, her idolatry, her unfaithfulness, her injustice, her lack of love for God and others. She says, we're deserving of this. As a city, we are deserving of what is coming to us. And how long will she bear this righteous anger? She says, until the Lord pleads her cause and executes judgment for her. And the words for executes judgment are literally do justice that we saw back in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you but to uh, love, to do justice, to love uh, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Jerusalem waits for God to do justice for her. And what will happen when God does justice for her, for her? She says, he will bring me out to the light. The Lord is her light, and he'll bring her out to the light from her darkness. She says she's going to look upon his vindication. And the word here is uh, righteousness. 
if we were to translate it a different way. And it brings us back to chapter 6, verse 5, where God said his actions in rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt and defeating their enemies and protecting them, those were acts so that they may know uh, his, the acts of his righteousness, his act, righteous acts. And there God was providing evidence. I always do right by my people with whom I am committed to. I always do right by them. I'm always doing the right thing. I'm always uh, showing that I'm in the right. And Jerusalem is expecting to see God act rightly on her behalf, to see God do justice on her behalf. And verse 10 makes clear what that will look like. It says, Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. And God uses nations to do his will in the world. We've seen that Assyria was the main threat to them at this time, and later Babylon actually does conquer Jerusalem, takes them into captivity. God uses nations to do his will in the world, like uh, punish, like for punishing his disobedient people. But those nations often also need to be judged for their own pride and their own wicked ways and their own uh, lack of worship of God. And they showed their pride as they took control of Jerusalem by asking, where is the Lord your God? And, you, know, you know, this is, obviously he's pretty weak. He can't do anything about us taking you over. Where is he? And they don't realize that it's all part of God's plan, that he's using them, he's letting them take Jerusalem over. But Jerusalem here says, you know, they will be put to shame and she will look on them trampled down in the mud of the streets. She will be lifted up and they will be brought down in the end. Their situations will be reversed. And so she says, well, don't rejoice over me now. I know that I look low now, but don't rejoice over me because in the end, God's going to lift me up. And this is how God will do justice for her. He will judge the enemy's wickedness while also lifting her up. Verses 11 through 13 are an announcement to Jerusalem of what that day of reversal will be like. And they say, uh, it's kind of, imagine this announcement, uh, a day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And Jerusalem's Broken walls will be rebuilt, and the boundaries, the borders of Israel, he says, there's not going to be, you're not going to be all cramped in like you are now uh, by these foreign nations. They're going to be extended out. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's going to be these other nations even coming to Jerusalem, a sign that they've put their trust in God and they've abandoned their gods. We saw Bob preach on that prophecy back in Micah 4 of how uh, Jerusalem will be lifted up this mountain of the Lord and there'll be other nations streaming to God. But everything outside of Jerusalem will be desolate, a wasteland. Why? It says because of its inhabitants. It's the fruit of their deeds, their pride, their injustice, their selfishness. And all that defines humanity living without God. This is the reality outside of God's kingdom. It's a kingdom of death. It's a kingdom of sin and selfishness that just ruins the earth. And then in verses 14 through 17, Micah starts with a prayer. He's confident... And in verse 7 he said, I'm confident God will hear me. And here we, we see the prayer that Micah was confident God would hear. Verse 14 says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. All throughout this book, Micah has dropped these messages of hope. We've seen that it's been very much confronting the people with, you need to, you've turned away from God, you need to turn back. And, but he also drops these messages of hope. And sometimes they're short, 
Sometimes they're long. In the middle, there's a very long one. But one of the consistent themes in those messages was the hope of God coming as a shepherd to shepherd his people. And here, Micah prays to God as their shepherd. He calls them uh, the flock of his inheritance. And throughout the Bible, God says, I'm going to give my people an inheritance that they can look forward to and take possession of. But the other thing the Bible talks about is that God's people are his inheritance that he looks forward to and he's going to take possession of. And so Micah says, shepherd the flock of your inheritance. He's saying, God, you're our shepherd. You'll shepherd us. Please lead us, guide us, protect us, feed us. And Bashan and Gilead refer to land on the east side of the Jordan River, technically outside of the land of Israel because the Jordan River was their eastern border. Uh, But when Israel was about to enter the promised land, two of the tribes said, can we settle out here? And so Bashan and Gilead were given to them, and this was a very fertile land. And this is a prayer for God uh, to protect and guide his people with his staff, you know, the shepherd's staff, and then also to lead them in green pastures because Bashan and Gilead were these fer- this fertile land. So, you know, you protect us, lead us, guide us, bring us to green pastures. And it may sound a little familiar to, like, uh, Psalm 23 there, like God leads us besides the waters into green pastures. And then verse 15 is God's answer to the prayer. God says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. And this is Exodus language. God is going to do a new Exodus, defeating their enemies, rescuing them and defending them. And when they're enslaved in Egypt, he says, I'm going to come in with my might and my power. I'm going to bring you out of there. I'm going to defeat Pharaoh and his armies. And I'm going to bring you out of there from slavery. You're going to be my people. And he says, I'm going to do that again. You're going to see marvelous things. In verses 16 and 17, Micah describes the results among the nations of the world. It says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Anyone who felt proud of their greatness and might will be ashamed. They'll be speechless, they'll bow down in the dirt like snakes in submission. They'll come trembling out of their fortresses, turning to God in fear and dread. And this is what happened in the Exodus. In, with might and power, God brought them out of Egypt and defeated all the enemies along the way and brought them into the Promised Land. And when they finally got to the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, uh, the people of Canaan trembled in fear at what they heard about Israel's God. They're just, uh, we heard when they go to Jericho, the people were just like shaking. We're shaking in our boots here because we've heard of what your God does. And if you think about it, the cross is our symbol of salvation. You know, it's like a universal symbol. Like you see the cross, oh, that means Christianity. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's, what, that's our symbol of salvation. And we have art and t-shirts and keychains and uh, tattoos and whatever else with the cross on it. And if Israel had all these things, the Exodus would be on it. They'd have tattoos and t-shirts and keychains or whatever with the the Exodus on it. And the Exodus is their symbol of salvation, especially the moment when they were crossing the Red Sea and Israel or Egypt's armies were behind them and they get to the other side of the Red Sea and then the Red Sea collapses on the armies of Egypt. And this was like the moment, like that's when God defeated rescued us. He brought us out and he defeated the army, our enemies that were coming against us. And God says, I'm going to lead you in a new exodus. The, and the salvation that Mike is looking for is another exodus out of slavery, out of oppression, out of these people that are pushing them down with the feet of his enemies. 
their, their enemies. If you remember from Luke 1, this is exactly what Zechariah saw happening um, when he was singing his song. This is what he was seeing happen in the birth of Jesus, that God is doing this thing again. The new exodus is happening now. Jesus is born to lead his people out of uh, slavery and oppression um, to what, uh, what we have, has been pushing us down and hurting us. And the book concludes with a praise for the whole community of the faithful to recite together. In the previous verses, Micah talked about how God was going to put the other nations to shame with power, cause them to be speechless, they'll bow down in submission, they'll come trembling from their strongholds, they'll turn in dread to God and fear Him. And then in verse 18, Micah asks, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And it's a rhetorical question, and rhetorical questions have an assumed answer. And when he asked the question, who is a God like you, the assumed answer is no one. No one is like God. The book ends with a, a reflection and a praise on what makes God completely unique, what makes him one of a kind. And after what Micah just said, we might expect him to reflect on God's power and on God's might to defeat their enemies. We might expect them to say, Who is a God like you, powerful enough to defeat all our enemies, making all the nations bow in fear of you? Who is a God like you, so powerful, so mighty? But that's not what Micah does. And of course, no one is as powerful and as mighty as God. But what really makes God stand out? Let's read and see. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So what makes God like no one else? What makes him totally unique? It's the way he deals with sinners. Our big idea for today is this. God is one of a kind in how he deals with our sin. God is one of a kind in how he deals with our sin. God is one of a kind in how he deals with our sin. There is no one like him. He is completely unique. Who is a God like you? No one. God is one of a kind in how he deals with our sin. Israel is suffering the consequences of their unfaithfulness to God. But that's not the end of the story for them. Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? And his book ends asking that question. And he doesn't reflect on God's judgment. Who is like the Lord? Look, mighty in his judgments. He doesn't reflect on who is like the Lord uh, with his power and might to defeat anybody. No, he reflects on how God deals with our sin. And the, and the words here, as I said at the beginning, are inspired by Exodus 34, 6-7 which become words that the people of Israel cherished, which is shown by how often they came back to them. They're repeated uh, in various parts of the Old Testament. They, it was, these are like, you know, we kind of memorize uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Like we memorize that verse. That's like Christians cherish, a cherished verse for Christians. Exodus 34, 6-7 was like all over the place in the Old Testament because it's like this is a cherished passage for us. This is who God is. This is fundamental, basics, bedrock character of God that we can rely on. 
And they came back to these words again and again. And they needed the reassurance of these words that tell them their God is one of a kind in dealing with their sins. And so how does he deal with our sin? These verses tell us he pardons them, he passes over transgression, and transgression is a, a, a breaking of trust, a breaking of covenant, um, breaking of trust with someone. So it's like they break trust all the time, but he passes over those things. And at this moment, Israel is bearing the righteous anger of God, but it says, but God will not be angry forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. And this is our word, hesed. We've, I keep talking about it of so many weeks that it just keeps coming up uh, in this in this book, and then it was coming up in Luke 1, but here it is, the, how it's often translated as steadfast love in the ESV version. This is God's compassionate, loyal love for his covenant partners in dire need. So why will he not be angry forever? Because he delights in steadfast love, because he delights in being compassionate and loyal and loving to his covenant partners who are in dire need. He's like, I'm committed to you. And I just love being compassionate towards you. I love being loyal to you. I love being loving towards you. I love coming to meet you in your dire need. I can't help but do that. It's just what he, how he is. He cannot stand by and do nothing when the people he's committed to need him. Compassion wells up within him. He does not break his commitment even though they have. And he will come to them in their dire need. He will again have compassion on them, we're told. And I love the image in verse 19. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It switches from talking about God in the third person. He will cast our iniquities underfoot. And then he starts talking directly to God. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And when Moses led the people through the Red Sea, the armies of Egypt were drowned in, the, drowned in it. But what gets drowned in verse 19? God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In this new exodus, God not only defeats those things uh, those enemies that are defeating us and oppressing his people, but he defeats their sin as well. And God does all this in showing faithfulness and steadfast love to Israel's ancestors, Jacob and Abraham. He's keeping his ancient promises. God is a faithful. He keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And when Jesus showed up, people expected him to come and defeat Israel's enemies in power and glory. They expected him to free them from the Roman Empire that oppressed them. But what did he do? He came as the good shepherd, the hope that Micah keeps coming back to. God, shepherd your flock. Shepherd the flock of your inheritance. Jesus came as the good shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep whom he's taking care of and loving and protecting and feeding. He came to tread our iniquities under his feet, to cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He came to show that there is no one like God when it comes to pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. That we are a, a whole world that is turned away from God. But what does God do? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And through Jesus, people of all nations, like he said, people are going to come flock into Jerusalem. So now through Jesus, his, his, the mission has become global. People of all nations are flocking to Israel's God. And it says that in Micah's prophecy that there'll be a time when people are just bowing down in dread and fear uh, like snakes in the dust. And at the uh, Philippians 2, 11 says at the end of history when Jesus returns in glory, every knee will bow Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. His lordship will be undeniable. Whether people 
trusted him for their salvation or not, people will say, yeah, you're obviously the most powerful one here. People will just bow down to him. And so how does God deal with us when we sin? When you disobey this week, what will God do? When you sin in thought or word or deed, how does God react? How does he treat you? What does he do about it? And we tend to have an inadequate understanding of how God responds to sin in his children. And it's rooted in our misunderstanding of grace. We go between two extremes. We go between the extreme of legalism, which is all law, and licentiousness, which is no law or lawlessness. We go between those two extremes, all law or no law or lawlessness. And so if you think God deals with you using all law, well, then you have an easy time believing that God sees your every sin and mistake and that he takes it very seriously. But if you see him through this lens, you probably have an unhealthy fear of him. You think that his love and affection for you goes up and down based on your obedience. And you think that he's always disappointed with you and waiting for you to get your act together. You think that God is fed up with you and it's up to you to make him happy. And if, if that's you, you are missing grace in your life. And if you think God deals with you using no law, then you think God forgives everything automatically. He never sees your sin, and so he's always pleased with you. And you think God uh, accepts you as you are. There's no need to change. And you see God is totally loving, and he couldn't be any other way. And God is never displeased or disappointed with your actions. You think this is what it means for God to be gracious, is that he's just always super happy with everything you do, and he's never going to tell you that you're wrong, because like, he just accepts me how I am. He's always pleased with me. Never has any sort of, uh, quote, bad emotions towards me. And if that's you, you're misunderstanding grace. And some of you may start as the first one. You might sin and feel really bad about it and wallow in guilt and shame and you beat yourself up, but then you realize, wait, 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 no, God gives grace. And so then you swing over to the second one and tell yourself that everything's okay. Jesus died for my sin. I don't need to feel bad about it or feel guilty. God isn't bothered by it, so I shouldn't be bothered by it either. And let's be clear, neither one of these are grace. These are two opposite and unhealthy extremes. And neither one is big biblical grace. Neither one of them is what a relationship with God looks like. Neither one is how God deals with our sin once we've trusted in Jesus. And so grace means that your sin doesn't put your relationship with God at risk. Your relationship with God isn't in jeopardy and at risk of falling apart every time you disobey. Grace means that God isn't done with you when you sin. Grace means that you don't have to be afraid that God is going to reject you, condemn you, abandon you, or hate you because you sin. He's not going to be against you. Grace means God isn't going anywhere. Grace means God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. Grace means God's love doesn't fluctuate up and down based on your obedience. His commitment with you doesn't go up and down depending on how good you are. You're no less safe with him and no less loved by him when you sin. That's what grace means. And some people apply the teaching of the Bible by saying, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus. Like we're all just little copies of Jesus. And that's not true. What is true is that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. Because your identity with him has changed. When God looks at you, he sees his beloved son or daughter. Uh, but he can still see our sin, and our sin doesn't separate us from him. When he looks at you, he doesn't see there's a sinner, uh, an enemy, 
of me, uh, of somebody who's rebelling against me. No, when he looks at you now, he sees his beloved son or daughter. In union with Christ, we have his Jesus' status, Jesus' standing, and his position before God with all of its rights and privileges. So when God looks at us, he sees us with all of those things that belong to Jesus. And it's not that he just sees Jesus, but we see all the things that belong to Jesus because we're in union with him. That's who we are. And what we do doesn't change that. But while this is true, it doesn't mean that God doesn't take our sin seriously. And we tend to think it's either one or the other. Either God is taking my sin seriously and he sees it and he takes it seriously, or God loves me no matter what and I'm safe with him and I have nothing to worry about in my relationship with him. We do one or the other. In other words, we don't believe what this passage teaches us, that God is both disciplining them and he still loves them and is committed to them and isn't done with them. That's what this passage says. There's, Jerusalem is saying, I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord. He's disciplining us. We deserve this. We've sinned against him. Also, he's not done with us. I'm looking to the future of what he's going to do. He's going to raise me up. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. All these things about forgiveness and mercy and compassion and grace. Like Both of them are true that we have sinned and God sees us and he's dealing with it. And he's not done with us. He's as, as committed to us today as he was yesterday. He's not done with us. We have a hard time believing that both can be true. That God takes my sin seriously and that he loves me and I'm safe with him. And why is that? Why do we have such a hard time with that? It's because so few human beings can do both well. And when you were growing up, you might, it's kind of like, um, it's maybe not a good way, to, you might be didn't think of your parents like this, but there might be, sometimes you see in TV shows like good cop, bad cop. It's like bad cop comes in, lays down the, all the law, and then good cop comes in like, oh, you know, that guy's kind of a jerk, right? You know, we can offer you a deal here, like we can get you off the hook. It's like, maybe you felt like your parents were kind of like good cop, bad cop, and uh, when you were growing up, you might have had one parent who felt safe and they kind of let you get away with a lot, and another parent who was like the rule enforcer. Like, they were always like, you need to do this, you need to get your homework. Like, that, 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 you're going to be grounding it. And then you were like, well, maybe you go to the other parent to complain about that parent because, well, this is the one that's, I feel like I can talk to them because they're not upholding the rules and like they're, you know, just a lot more nice and stuff um, than the other one. Or you might have had a parent that just swung back and forth between the two. That one moment they're like, oh, they're trying to lay down the rules, and then they feel a little bad about it, and they're like, you know what, no, actually you can have, well, today it would be phone, but you know, actually you can have your phone back. Or like, actually you're not grounded, like, I'm not mad anymore. And they kind of swung back and forth. The reality is that God can be grieved about our sin. God can be displeased by our actions. God does discipline us as a good and wise father, but, but grace doesn't mean that God ignores our sin. In fact, grace means God is committed to freeing us from our sin. Titus 2 says uh, that the grace of God has appeared both bringing salvation to all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. What Michael wrote here was to help those who are faithful, who are still believing in God and trusting in them, trying to help, to help them uh, to put their hope in God in the middle of the discipline and, so, and also for people who are turning back to them, how do they uh, put their hope in him? And so a few, just a few things that we can do to take out of this passage. How can, what do they tell us about responding to God's discipline in our lives? So if we feel like I've sinned and I feel like God's disciplining me, first we can accept God's discipline. Uh, when Jerusalem is talking, 
She bears God's indignation because she says, I've sinned against him. God's acting faithfully in this relationship. This is what he said he was going to do. He's relating to them exactly how he said he would relate to them. He's upholding his end of the covenant. Uh, they, he said, this is what's going to happen if you don't do the things that you committed to in this relationship. I'm going to do this. And so he's really acting faithfully in the relationship. And so we accept it, his discipline. And we would do the same uh, as parents with ch- children to our parents. We would do the same thing. Like, okay, that's your job to discipline me and to deal with my misbehavior. Second, believe God is near. First, accept God's discipline. Second, believe God is near. Notice that the faithful aren't asking, where are you, God? Uh, their enemies were asking that of them, but they aren't asking that. And Hebrews 12 says, in our relationship with God, uh, we should expect to be disciplined. In fact, it's a sign that we are in a relationship with him. If he wasn't disciplining us and just leading us to our sin on our own, to its destruction, he wouldn't be treating us as sons. And discipline, well, that's what Hebrews says, it says sons, um, but includes sons and daughters. Uh, and discipline comes from a father who loves us, not from a father who has left us or is fed up with us. Third, trust God's good purposes. So accept God's discipline, believe God is near, trust God's good purposes. The nation of Israel was a mixture of people who were faithful to God, uh, but many were not faithful to God. But the punishment was affecting all of them, uh, you know, a mixture of people living in Jerusalem and in the nation. This passage is for those who are still faithful to God. It's full of hope, even as they undergo the punishment for sin that came upon the nation. And God is not done with their nation, and God is not done with Jerusalem. And we, we may undergo God's discipline as a church together, as a church body, and you may undergo God's discipline as an individual child of God. And in all of it, we can be full of hope knowing that God is not done with us. Hebrews 12, 10-11 says, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, or rather rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In order to make us who he wants us to be, we often need to be shown the emptiness and destructiveness of the path we're on. And God needs to let us experience the ugliness of our sin for ourselves before we'll turn from it sometimes. God loves us enough to not rescue us from all of our foolish and bad decisions. Fourth, we can pray his promises. In the middle of it, they're praying what's true. He says that, I'm going to lift up Israel. I'm going to restore these boundaries. Then Micah goes and he prays. I'm going to pray, would you shepherd us? Would you do this, Lord? So we hold on to what we know is true about God. What he said, that doesn't change in the middle of it. And believing, oh, God left me, doesn't love me anymore. Lastly, be amazed by his grace. Be amazed by his grace. Are we people whose jaws drop at God's grace? Do we say, each morning we could say, I don't deserve this relationship. I'm such a mess. On my best days, I'm a million miles away from earning anything with you, God, or anything from you. My whole life is a living testimony to God's grace. I'm called a beloved child of God. And that would be the biggest joke in the world if it wasn't true. Like, how in the world could I be called God's beloved child 
that he says, I, you know, you're my inheritance, and you know, I'm looking forward to taking possession of you at the end of time when you come and be uh, with me in my presence. Like, how could that be true? That's the biggest joke in the world. Like, me? Excited about me? I'm your beloved child? You delight me? I'm your treasure possession? How is that even possible? That's the biggest joke. You should take it on tour. It would be if it wasn't actually true. That's grace. How does he deal with our sin? Yes, he disciplines us so we can be free of sin. But he isn't angry forever. He doesn't hold a grudge and, and hold it over you. He doesn't carry bitterness or resentment. He, he pardons us. He forgives us for our lack of commitment. He, he remains committed when we're not. He, he delights in steadfast love. He has compassion. He gets rid of our sin. He casts all of them into the depths of the sea. He doesn't trample on us under his feet. He tramples on our sin. God is on our side against our sin. He isn't against us. He's for us. What he's doing for the nation of Israel and what he does for us uh, in disciplining us, it's not, I'm against you and here we go. It's, no, I'm against your sin. I want to get that out of you. And so he's like, I want to trample on this. I want to cast it into the sea. I want to forgive you for it. I want you to be free of the, the hole it has on your life. God is one of a kind in how he deals with our sin and there's no one like him. And for us as a community, our call is to be radically committed to one another, even as we correct sin in one another and work towards transformation. What does grace look like, sound like, and feel like? When we're dealing with in relationship with one another, it sounds like you sinned, you really messed up, and that's not okay. I still love you. I'm committed to you. You're safe with me. I'm not going anywhere. I want to work through this and I want to walk alongside you in this. That's what it looks like for us to embody God's character to one another, that we're not saying, uh, I'm just ignoring sin, never addressing sin in each other. That's not grace. That's just pretending it's not there. Overlooking sin and tolerating sin isn't grace. A community where sin is never corrected or talked about isn't a gracious community. The, The person sinning never gets to actually experience grace because they're just doing what they want to do and think it's fine, or they're hiding it, hoping that no one's noticing. So they never get to experience grace. They're just living in guilt and shame or in ignorance that they're actually doing anything wrong. But when it's brought to the light, now it's, oh no, it's in the light. People see it. It's seen. People know I'm a sinner and that I'm messing up. And now how are people going to react to it? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to abandon me? Are they going to run away like so many people do? No, this is going to be a different type of community where we respond and deal with sin how God responds and deals with sin. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to be faithful to you. You're safe with me. And let's walk together through this and not going anywhere. That's how a community actually embodies this type of grace, not by just, we just kind of like let everything go. Um, Sometimes we let things go. That's uh, sin. That's part of it. Not everything has to be addressed, but uh, when we're correcting one another and helping bring things out, we get to actually experience grace and show grace to one another. And so, God is one of a kind you know, He deals with our sin. And that's what Micah always had in his heart as he's telling the people these hard words like, you guys have messed up, but you can still come back to God. So let's pray that we would be a community that sees God that way and that we would live it out with each other. Father, would you... Let these words sink into our heart that there is no one like you in how you deal with sin, that you are the most gracious, most merciful, most compassionate, most forgiving, 
most loving. Your love is steadfast. You come to us in our dire need. You've rescued us. You've sent Jesus, who is the perfect picture of what your grace is like in the flesh. So Lord, would you let us become a community that is being more and more freed from sin through your discipline? Would you let us be walking in the light with each other and bringing things to light and showing your grace to each other? In your son's name we pray. Amen.